everyone. Welcome to the Wicked Podcast. Today we have a very exciting episode for you that's being released as part of Sexual Assault Prevention Month and the Two Rivers Festival. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Emma Callen, Harin Hassan, and Courtney of Protect the Tract. So I will turn it over to my lovely guests to introduce themselves, starting with Emma. Hi, thank you so much. Um, My name is Emma Callen, and currently I'm a volunteer with the Two Rivers Festival, which is a project of Wellington Water Watchers. Um, And I do have a background uh, supporting survivors of gender-based violence. And I'll pass it to Harim to introduce herself and talk a little bit about uh, Wellington Water Watchers and the Two Rivers Festival. Hey everyone, my name is Harine. I use she, her pronouns, um, and I work with the Water Watchers as their Guelph campaign organizer. Um, So just in a nutshell, the Two Rivers Festival, as Emma mentioned, is a project of the Water Watchers and has been a thing for for the past uh, 10 years that strives to connect the Guelph community with the city's two beautiful rivers, the Speed and the Aramasa. Uh, The whole idea behind this celebratory event is that people will protect what they love. um, And this festival helps community cultivate that relationship between each other and with the water and grows their love um, for their watersheds. Um, And this year's theme is reaching the river's edge, which encompasses an invitation to all community members to bring their stories and share together on the shores of our rivers. Um, In in the past, uh, the Two Rivers Festival has focused predominantly on ecology. Um, Our collective awareness, as as our collective awareness grows, so too um, grows the understanding for the need to learn more about the intersectional issues that compound and exacerbate ecological problems. And this year's theme asks the question, whose stories have not been told? Um, And it's time to tell those untold stories and to draw connections between water, the land, and the people, especially for settlers that are uh, on this land, um, to stop and to listen and to uphold treaty responsibilities. Um, And I guess that's what we're doing today with this podcast. We're exploring the very intersection between gender and the environment and telling a story that some have yet to hear. Um, Yeah. Amazing. Thanks so much for uh, giving us that information, Harine. And I think this year's theme is is just beautiful and bringing community together and looking at the root causes of, of ecological harms and looking at those social causes, which we're going to be talking a bit more about today. And I'll turn it over to Courtney to introduce herself and a little bit more information about Protect the Tract. Hi, uh, my name is Courtney Skye. I'm Mohawk Turtle Clan from Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. Uh, Six Nations is along the Grand River, and it's a part of the, uh, it's the reserve that has been created following the displacement of Haudenosaunee people uh, to the Grand River watershed. And so in 1784, the Haldeman Proclamation promised and affirmed that the Haudenosaunee would have use of six miles on either side of the Grand River uh, for our use and enjoyment forever. And over time, you know, our communities and people have been displaced onto a small parcel of that reserve. And so Protect the Tract is about reasserting and talking about how 
that land theft has taken place over time, but also building our community's capacity to steward the lands and waters of the Grand River within the Haldeman Tract, but also bring in um, conversations around our the rest of our territory. So protect the tract and the Grand River and the Haldeman Proclamation are one small part of our uh, territory. The Nanfan Treaty is kind of the entirety of Haudenosaunee territory. And that includes kind of the areas that include the watershed. It includes Guelph, it includes Toronto, it includes upstate New York, you know, we have a broad territory, but Protect the Tract is specifically about the Grand River and how we're going to see Haudenosaunee people steward the land um, and move forward with um, our human rights-based approach to um, upholding our traditional government's ability to assert that land stewardship um, where it's been promised to us through treaty. That's excellent, Courtney. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you be speaking with us on this podcast. Um, so we're here today really to talk about the intersection between gender-based violence, land violence, and colonization. And as Harine was mentioning, sort of the theme for this year's festival is about connecting the people of the lands to the issues of these lands and looking at the social causes and how also solutions of how we can join together uh, to address social issues and address environmental issues together. So we're going to start off sort of with defining some terms that we're going to be speaking about today and, and giving context as to what this issue is, how they intersect, uh, and starting off just giving a little bit of context about what we mean when we say gender-based violence. Um, so what we mean when we say gender-based violence, some folks might also be familiar with the terminology of violence against women. Uh, but gender-based violence sort of recognizes that it's not just women who experience violence as the result of their gender identity. It's also two-spirit, non-binary, and transgender folks who are experiencing disproportionate rates of violence as well related to their gender identity. And it's looking at how gender oppression, um, so gender inequality, is enacted through violent means. And so when we refer to gender-based violence, it's kind of an umbrella term where we're talking about sexualized violence, so including harassment, sexual assault, anything that's happening without consent falls under that umbrella, as well as intimate partner violence. That can include physical violence, emotional abuse, manipulation, coercion, financial abuse. Really what we're seeing there is an abuse of, of power and control within relationship dynamics. And lastly, human trafficking, which is around looking at sex, sexual exploitation. Um, so using women and their bodies for sexual sexually exploitative means. Um, and looking at you know, those different forms of violence, they're also rooted in our larger social systems. Um, and I'll pass it to Emma to maybe speak a little bit more about how we're seeing sort of the root causes of that violence take place. Um, so yeah, I, I would understand um, the root causes of violence uh, in patriarchy and capitalism and my and colonization. Um, but my understanding of patriarchy that it is um, a culture of domination that we live in, the oppression of women and other genders. And I know you mentioned, Emma, sort of one of those those root causes is, is colonization. And I'm wondering if, uh, Courtney, if we're able to unpack that term a little bit more and speak about uh, when we're talking about violence against the land, how does colonization play a role in that? Yeah, colonization and, and settler colonialism and other types of these terms um, have to do with the historical process of how Indigenous people were displaced from their lands and waters and territories and how that continues to exist today. 
So we see through history this displacement of Indigenous people where they're no longer the dominant people of a territory and their laws and their customs, their culture is no longer what kind of defines or controls a territory. And so if we see this in a specifically Canadian context, it is linked to things like the economy, it's linked to land possession, but it's also the process that Canada used to establish itself as a country. And so when we look at things like say reconciliation, reconciliation as kind of a legal concept is how Canada reconciles its power with, the, with Canada's assumed authority and power, whereas Indigenous nations and Indigenous people have an inherent power and authority um, to be where they are. And so reconciliation is this process of making it work and, and trying to figure out how these two things are balanced. But oftentimes we see it continue things like um, the dominance of settler society and the um, undermining of Indigenous rights. And so um, when we talk about how land is connected, uh, you know, it's all about the land. But, um, you know, and violence is committed to the land, land is exploited, but violence against Indigenous people and Indigenous women and, you know, gender diverse people, that is necessary in order to maintain power. So we see a system of power that's controlled by the state that um, requires dominance, requires the oppression of Indigenous people in order to maintain power. And Canada does that through laws, through the use of force, through police violence. It also does it through myth-making by uh, perpetuating st harmful stereotypes around Indigenous people and their rights to govern themselves and um, overrule their, um, their right to exist as human beings and ha exercise their collective rights. Yeah, beautifully said, Courtney. I think, you know, speaking to that displacement, like the purposeful erasure and assimilation uh, that's been taking place from the colonial settler colonialism. Uh, and also, you know, you're talking about that assumed authority and power and how violence has been used as a, as a tool to gain and maintain that and even grow the authority and power. Um, and I'm wondering if we could chat a little bit now about in what ways has violence been used as a tool of colonization and who are the individuals or groups that are enacting that violence? Uh, I don't know, Courtney, if you wanted to go first and weigh in on that. Well, it's happened a lot of different ways too, right? So we talk specifically about even at Six Nations, right? So um, Six Nations of the Grand River, we settled here following, you know, the Haldeman Proclamation was made in 1784. So even though this territory was part of our broader territory, hunting territory, um, around the time that, you know, you know uh, the American Revolution was happening, um, there was set widespread settlement in this area. Um, Haudenosaunee people and my nation, the Mohawk people, we were mostly settled at that time in upstate New York. Um, we were allies with the British Crown. And so um, after the British lost the American Revolution or pushed back into what's now known as Canada, uh, following that war, there was something called the Sullivan Campaign. And George Washington, who was uh, America's first president, ordered this campaign of erasure and essentially ordered 5,000 troops to march on Haudenosaunee villages. And they marched through 40 villages in upstate New York and burned out our people from their homes and people fled to um, forts in the area. Um, in Niagara um, and sought this kind of support from the British to say, you know, we've lost our land because we were your allies. You know, we couldn't stay in our homelands because we were loyal to you. And so 
that's where the Haldeman Proclamation comes in. It was this promise to protect six miles on either side of the Grand River so that Haudenosaunee people could have a place to be safe following that, that um, allyship. And so there was this agreement that was brokered that this land would be set aside for our use and enjoyment. And so um, over time, that relationship changes. And, and it, um, there's been a need for Canada to kind of affirm itself. And so if you see kind of the progress of time where Haudenosaunee people were forcibly relocated, um, around the time that the Canada started to um, developed the Indian Act, which is in the early or the late 1800s, um, many communities resisted it. Um, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy being one of them, they were actively lobbying against it. They were also raising concerns around um, trust funds that were being administered by the Crown. And so uh, in the 1840s, um, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy had about 12 million pounds of um, uh, within a trust. Um, but it was overseen by British lords. And over time, that fund was depleted. They actually were able to um, study the where what had happened with the funds and ask for a, uh, an investigation into the funds. They found about 40% of their wealth had been squandered and spent to do things like build Osgood Hall and you know Toronto City Hall, different city halls, different projects, different investments were made using our money without our benefit. And so um, in 1920, um, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy finally won the right to have a royal commission to see how this money had been misspent. And then before the commission could start in 1924, um, the RCMP came in and forcibly uh, imposed an Indian Act system within the community, arrested hereditary leaders, and instilled a um, elected government in the the elected government system in the community. At the time, there was around 3,000, you know, 3,500 people that were living at Six Nations in Grand River, and only 38 people participated in that first election. And this was seen as, you know, creating democracy in our community. And so this kind of divide and this kind of undermining of our government system has always continued. And especially with Six Nations, you see things like um, Gunnestado, 1492 Lambeck Lane, all these different points of resistance, it's always, it's transferred from a diplomatic relationship between two nations and two sovereigns into one of subjugation and oppression that happens at the hands of police. And so we see how the Crown has kind of transferred this role of dealing with land dispute issues either to their bureaucracy or to the hands of police where um, police violence is used to maintain power and authority and control over land once Indigenous peoples have been displaced from that land. Yeah, thank you, Courtney. So really just hearing here that, you know, there's really when it comes to occupation uh, and colonialism, I would say that from what you're saying, that violence is kind of an inherent part of that and the different forms that it can take um, can be um, that that force, you know, doing things without that meaningful consent, uh, trying to impose laws and governments and institutions without that meaningful relationship there with with indigenous communities and looking at institutions like law enforcement that continue to enforce that power and authority. Absolutely. I'm wondering, Emma, if you had anything to add to that in terms of how violence has been used as a tool of colonization. Yeah, I mean, Courtney uh, said it beautifully. And, um, you know, like she kind of said, uh, violence, exploitation, um, and control over land and people have been used in a number of ways to enact colonization in Canada. 
Um, one example is that European colonizers used Indigenous women to access new territories and markets during the fur trade in the 1700s. Um, indigenous women were made to be commodities and were also taken as uh, quote unquote country wives before European women uh, were allowed to travel to Canada at that time. Um, and the residential school system also facilitated physical, sexual and spiritual abuse of indigenous children. Um, so these are just some additional examples of ways that sexual oppression has intersected with racism and capitalism in Canada. Um, today, we see a disproportionate number of Indigenous women and girls gone missing, murdered, trafficked, and in the prison system. Um, indigenous women and girls are made vulnerable to sexual violence and exploitation precisely because of the impact of colonization and intergenerational trauma, poverty, engagement in the child welfare system, and race and gender discrimination, for instance. Um, in terms of who is enacting this violence, it can be individuals, industries, governments, and institutions. Um, we see this really clearly when we look at the fossil fuel, uh, at fossil fuel extraction sites, particularly in Canada and the US, which endanger both women in the land. Um, so fossil fuel extraction sites have a high correlation with increased violence against Indigenous women. Um, these projects expose Indigenous women to violence because they create man camps, which are temporary settlements often near Indigenous communities. Um, so for example, last year, two Enbridge pipeline contractors working on the Line 3 project um, were arrested and charged with solicitation in northern Minnesota, also where the Keystone pipeline has been proposed in um, the northern plains region of the US. It was found that there were 411 cases of missing or murdered Indigenous people in that area. One more example of where we see this violence enacted by industry and the state is on Wet'suwet'en territory today. Um, so indigenous land defenders are opposing the coastal gas link pipeline and are met with violence by police um, who kind of act as an arm of the state and are collaborating with the fossil fuel industry to protect extraction sites. Um, so I also just, I wanted to include uh, this quote that I heard um, is from a recent U.S. congressional oversight hearing. Uh, so someone named Angel Charlie of the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women said, we know that what happens to our land happens to our women. Mm, that's a great quote. Yeah, thanks Emma for sharing that. And, um, you know, I think it's something that's also been in the news a lot lately and is that the freedom convoy happening in ottawa and a lot of folks making the parallel between if this were indigenous individuals occupying their land uh, which they fully have the right to we would have seen a very different result uh, with regards to the government's response or really the inaction that we saw in ottawa for several weeks whereas individuals at 1492 land back and wet sweat and territory are being forcibly removed arrested simply for existing on on their own land so i think we see the parallel as well about how that violence is enacted in particularly on Indigenous peoples and communities in a way than which it hasn't for settlers who are illegally engaging in land occupations. And I know, Emma, you touched upon this a little bit with regards to the gendered impacts of colonization, but wanting to hear from you, Courtney, as well, or what are some of the gendered impacts that colonization has had and violence against the land, the intersection there between gender and that violence? Oh, it's so significant. And this is something that's been well known. So there is 
um, you know, even one of the first studies, you know, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People talked about how um, the government and the governance of Indigenous nations has been disrupted, and that necessarily included women. And so, again, to speak to my own people, like the Haudenosaunee, we're a matriarchal society, women are a critical part of decision making, and the state, by having these patriarchal, these white supremacist values, devalue the role of women and displace our women's ability to make decisions, to be informed in government, and to have kind of that power and authority that they have within our nations. And so there's a very specific way that our nations are undermined when we talk about, you know, violence and colonialism being perpetuated. Um, what happens with, um, you know, missing and murdered Indigenous women, a lot of the times too, as Emma was saying, like, you see these attacks and these intentional ways that our communities are made vulnerable because doing so allows for a lack of social cohesion, allows our communities to be continuously traumatized in survival mode in this situation where you're just constantly grieving, you're constantly dealing with these traumatic events and then you don't have the ability to maintain your government structures or you really, you really struggle in being able to do that. And you see the ways in which our communities cannot care, cannot enact our own laws because we're so um, oppressed and we're so disempowered by the state to be able to do things in a way that express gender, express family, express wealth and um, care and economies in different ways. And the purpose of that, again, it goes back to the land, to be able to exploit and extract resources from the land, to be able to disregard the laws that um, are held within the land and the care that's held for us within the land in order to exploit and extract wealth from the land. And so I think that we're going to continue to see you know, without and without dealing with these underlying issues, without dealing with this disproportionate violence and these actual root causes of colonialism and gendered violence, that we're never going to see Indigenous women made safer. And we're never going to see some of the systemic issues in communities be addressed. Because this, I think, is a question that a lot of people have is, well, why haven't there, why hasn't there been clean water on reserves? Why is there so much violence? Why is there so much poverty? without having that kind of multi-generational perspective on how we came to be in the position that we are at, but also realizing that that inaction actually is, empowers the state. Not doing anything by continuing to disrupt people's lives, the state gains power that way, they maintain control that way. And we see communities you know, not have their basic needs met because for a long time, you know, indigenous peoples were historically excluded from the economy. You know, they needed permission to leave the community for work. They had to have very specific reasons why um, they were getting money. You know, residential schools were not schools. They were kind of like forced labor for a certain portion of time. For kids, they never taught children, you know, meaningful skills. Um, there are stories from residential schools where, um, you know, they were training young indigenous women to be maids and housekeepers and wouldn't teach them how to do things like wash clothes or do laundry or how to operate a washing machine. And when that was regular technology that existed at the time. So could you imagine hiring someone that wasn't actually skilled to do the job you were hiring them to do? Like that it would, um, you wouldn't hire that person. And that was kind of the product of the schools. And so it was a really, um, 
there's been so many ways through so many generations where this violence has happened. And then what happens is communities can't pass that wealth on. They can't leave it to their children. They can't accumulate wealth. And they have been excluded in that way. Um, they, you know, they haven't had the ability to participate fairly. And so um, there's just so many, you know, and we think about gender, we think about women, we think about how much that impacts them, right? And how much um, having that ability to determine our wealth does matter. Um, for Haudenosaunee people, being matriarchal people, everything that used to happen within the village was the responsibility of women. And so women had held the homes, they held all the power, they decided on all the food, they decided on um, all of the, you know, they owned all the homes, they knew who was a part of their clan and their nation, they took care of them, they were responsible for all of that. But everything that happened within the village, you know, women owned and were responsible for that. And when you take women out of that situation, they, you know, our, our lives are disrupted and we don't have that ability anymore. Um, and we're slowly working to regain it back. But I would also say that Indigenous people have resisted. So even though all of these things have happened and continue to happen, there are still ways that our communities have organized themselves to maintain um, our culture and ceremonies and languages, despite all of that colonial violence. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's, you know, a big part of, of Protect the Tract is looking at how, and with Two Rivers Festival as well, is how can communities based solutions be brought forward um, and you know even with talking about issues around violence against indigenous women the solutions have been brought forward time and time again particularly by indigenous communities and leaders we have the national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women we have the calls to justice and so we have the solutions I think being brought forward and it's a matter of really listening and, and taking action on that and I know Courtney you briefly touched on sort of how individuals are, are coping resisting and fighting back but I'm uh, wondering if you could, would be able to share a little bit more of how those who are impacted by violence, either gender-based violence or land violence and displacement, what's the response to that looking like? How are people coping, resisting, and fighting back? There are a number of different ways. And so first I would say that like whatever Indigenous people are doing to resist colonial violence, like whatever they feel, and any person who's experiencing violence, you know, the ways that they are responding to that violence they're experiencing, they're all valid. And I think that there are indigenous people, you know, and this is often, um, you know, there are often indigenous people who participate in things like resource extraction or economic development. Like that's not the tactic and the approach that I take, but I recognize that those are people who have experienced the same kind of intergenerational trauma that I have. And they're using their lived experience and where they see opportunity to find support and healing for our communities in a way that they see as being practical. And so they might not agree with the tactics I'm using either, but at the same time, we can have this mutual respect and recognize that we still care about healing and moving our people forward and having this survival, um, having that survival um, happen for our communities. But there's a number of different ways this happens. You know, indigenous people, they can adopt a colonial mindset so that means that they might actually internalize colonialism and oppression. They might begin to believe all of those racist things that are said about our people. They might believe that we don't have an ability to govern ourselves, even though self-government is a basic human right that you don't need a precondition to meet. There's no precondition to human rights. They just are something that you should have regardless of, you know, we have those, we have those um, born within us as indigenous people we should be able to exercise them. 
And then indigenous people do things like restructure or adapt. So they might determine how to transform or change their cultural practices to ensure survival. Um, indigenous people also like maintain their own ways of being. So they might hide or continue to practice their distinct culture away from the mainstream. And this is something that maybe like a lot of indigenous workers are doing or people who are racialized, whose um, culture doesn't fit within kind of like the Judeo-Christian calendar and work schedule we all live under. They don't, you know, they might take days off to um, attend specific ceremonies or have certain religious functions or go and practice their culture in a certain ways. This might be something that indigenous people do as well. You know, they could take time off around now to do things like collect maple sap, harvest and hunt, um, or participate in ceremonies when they use unpaid vacation time or whatever to be able to do that. And they could undermine or resist colonial structures. So these are, you know, indigenous people that are on the front lines of say like 1492 Lambeck Lane who are actively engaged in direct action, but it could also be um, indigenous people like academics or journalists that participate in colonial systems and structures, but work to undo their harm or mitigate their harm um, when they do their work themselves. So there's all these different kinds of ways that indigenous people could organize and push back against um, the colonialism that they're experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're speaking, it just brought up for me about a lot of the points that you mentioned. I see, you know, in working with survivors of, of trauma related to gender based violence, there's a lot of crossover in terms of that aspect of self preservation and survival. Uh, I know there's obvious differences, I think, in the experience, and no one's experience with trauma in any way is, is the same. And so it's looking at, you know, what does I, sometimes we say, you know, in, in the work that we do is that resistance is everything that you're doing in that moment to survive. Uh, resistance is what it looks like for you to continue to heal, continue to have that. And for some that can look like advocacy and, and getting involved in the work and can some, for some it can look like maybe doing that more privately and outside of the institutions that have caused harm. I don't know if Emma had anything to add there. Yeah, just maybe to reiterate, um, the impacts of violence on individuals and communities. Um, there's definitely individual and collective uh, trauma that people experience, like you said, Courtney, um, and it runs through generations. Um, I think uh, another problem is the, uh, or impact is the advancement of the climate crisis. Um, so in a more global context, um, climate change has impacted uh, communities in a number of ways. It's contributed to dry spells that cause agriculture collapse and extreme weather events like floods that displace people and entire communities. Um, and we know that when women have fewer economic opportunities and are displaced, they're made more vulnerable to violence and exploitation. So. Um, yeah, just really highlighting the how the advancement of the climate crisis um, also impacts uh, women on a global level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the impacts are happening not just locally, but globally. Um, and I think, you know, today we're really here to speak about the intersection of, of that issue, and particularly we're talking about gender-based violence, colonization, and land violence. And from the conversation today, what's what's been brought up for me is that there is some commonalities between these movements. So I wanted to hear from, from you, Courtney, and Emma, of what do you think the movements to end both gender-based violence and Indigenous land defense have in common? There's so much in common. For me, it was 
really comp like there was a point where like I you know I used to work in government I used to work in uh, um advocacy and and in the ending violence field for a long time for many years that was what my my career was and I'm especially interested in this idea of the intersection between gender violence and um governance and land because they're so in they're so connected you know women are harmed so that our land can be stolen from us and that our governments cannot function properly. They're so connected. And there was a point for me where I realized that there was this dispute happening in my own community. And I was like, well, I need to get involved and I need to cope with this. I need to um, you know, be involved and be a part of this movement that's happening. And I was uh, you know, participating or you know, traveling to a land defense action. And there as like a researcher, um, I was working as a director in a justice department at the time, giving legal supports to people on the front line. And I ended up being arrested. And I was arrested by the police and um, taken 30 kilometers from my home, um, released without anyone from my family knowing, didn't have a phone, and was kind of left at sunset to walk back to my community at in, in the dark. And thankfully, one of my aunts realized that I was knew what had happened and she had come to got me but I had walked about um a kilometer on like an unpaved road to try to get back home before it got dark even though it was like so many kilometers away and I think about that right because we see these it's not just in theory and I think that was like the thing for me that became so obvious is these are not just theories or these are not just ideas and like really big concepts and you know we're talking a lot about academic terms, but this really comes down to um, a system of violence that is perpetrated against all of us all the time. It is constantly there and it is constantly looking to exploit and the consequences of it are the climate catastrophe, right? The climate disaster. We've seen this kind of unfettered exploitation of indigenous peoples and specifically indigenous, you know, a burden that's bared most by indigenous women. And then we see what's happened with that. And it's just this, damning damning ecological damage that our communities are then left to deal with and it just it feels like it's never going to stop but we have indigenous people who continue to organize and resist that and i'm just hoping that like when we talk about you know land defense actions it's where that becomes real right because you see kind of where indigenous people say no more where this is a line that communities are going to draw and say like we can't allow these harms to continue and a lot of times frontline actions like this are led by um, queer people, they're led by gender diverse people, they're led by indigenous women um, who are organizing in their communities. And it's been so beautiful to see that not just here, but to visit other territories where they have like a similar movement happening. And so I think about like Kitagon Zibi and the Moose Moratorium, right? Like the Moose Moratorium was so necessary for the, for the Algonquins in Kitagon Zibi because they rely on moose for food sustenance and the sport hunting and people just trophy hunting moose was eroding their survival. And so they put in a moratorium and actually block access to sport hunting locations so that they could stop the hunt from happening and put their bodies on the line, right? And that's different from here because if you're in a hunting territory or you're pushing back against hunters, those are people with guns, you know, they have high power rifles to shoot moose and they're coming in and telling them, no, you're not allowed to shoot our moose anymore. Like that's a huge risk of personal to your personal self. And that movement too had 
queer and women at the front of the movement, voicing and direct, interacting directly with police, um, with a police force to the SQ who perpetuate violence against indigenous women all the time. And it's just so, um, it's just so real. And I think people need to remember that like this colonialism that happened, it looks different today, but it's still happening. You know, we don't see maybe like um, fights on the plains or whatever people think of, you know, colonialism needs to look like, but we're still seeing indigenous people die every day due to racist systems and structures. And we have to do what we can to organize against it. Really stuck out for me how you said around how the systems of, of colonial violence has impacts all of us. And that got me thinking about how what we have as the quote unquote like solutions makers uh, are these, you know, government and formal institutions that are supposed to help solve and fix social problems. But the ways in which that's being done is that, um, you know, we can't be reliant on government action. We can't be reliant on institutional action. And I think that's been seen not just with um, land defense movements, but also in the gender-based violence sector, you know, we can't rely on government programs and funding to help e exist and to solve these issues. Um, and I think that's resulted in a lot of kick-ass community care and grassroots movements and recognizing how can we build communities, not just locally, uh, but those solidarity networks, as you're saying, kind of keep being connected to those in other communities doing this work, learning from each other uh, and growing with each other. I don't know if Emma, you had anything to add there for uh, the commonality between uh, gender-based violence and land defense movements. In my opinion, uh, movements to end gender-based violence and indigenous land defense are both working towards self-determination and ending that culture of domination and entitlement that we live in. And I think like Courtney said as well, um, women and indigenous women in particular are at the forefront of these movements. Um, the women are often responsible for uh, sustaining their communities and families, and when their lands or livelihoods are threatened, so are their communities and families, and this is why they're often leading land defense movements. Um, it's also why they're often targeted for violence, so uh, we, we've seen this a lot also in Central and South America, uh, like in Honduras, where land defenders are opposing mining projects. Um, they've been murdered, and similarly in Brazil, um, where people have been opposing, opposing um, illegal logging projects. So yeah, it's, it's definitely um, a global problem. Absolutely. And thinking back even to when at the top of the podcast, when we were talking about what gender-based violence is and its different forms, and we've talked also today about what land violence is and its different forms, I uh, definitely see some connection thinking about, say, like human trafficking and land violence is around we want to stop exploitation. Uh, we want to stop that entitlement to land and bodies. Um, thinking about sexual violence and violence against the land, you know, we're thinking, we're talking about consent. And that consent can look different in the context of, of land defense and consent related to um, sexual activity. But looking at that, really that respect um, and that relationship building and what that looks like and holding dignity. Um, and also looking at, you know, for ways of healing. It's a big part of, of trauma and however we can heal individually and collectively and even looking at how can reconnecting with land and culture be a path to healing um, for Indigenous survivors. And since we've talked about, you know, the, the different movements and, and want to leave folks with now we have some information about what that intersection looks like. 
what are the pathways forward? So how can these movements continue to collaborate? How can we build that solidarity? Um, and ultimately, you know, what does it look like to prevent ongoing violence against women, uh, against uh, gender nonconforming folks, and preventing violence against the land? Uh, I don't know, Courtney, if you have any thoughts on that one. Well, for us at Protect the Track, it's definitely Protect the Track. Um, you know, this is exactly why we have this kind of campaign designed, right? This came out of um, Land Back. This came out of this movement. It came out of conversations for a moratorium on development along the Haldeman Track that was called for by our traditional leaders, right? It's this idea that we have a right to say what happens in our territory and we have this ability to steward our lands and have this um, affirming, affirm our own laws. And so that's a really huge criteria of um, protect the tract is that we want our Haudenosaunee people, Haudenosaunee young people to grow up with this um, strong understanding of their sense of identity as it relates to us and our laws and our worldview. And land stewardship, trauma-informed care, all those things are built into our culture and into our laws. And so for Haudenosaunee people, we talk about this like mindfulness, but it's embedded from our the very beginning of our of our creation. You know, we talk about our creation stories and how Haudenosaunee people understand our relationship to the world. It's based in this idea that, you know, the the world is our mother and like everything that's here is given instructions on how to exist here. And so the birds and the medicines and the hanging fruits and the trees, they're all given instructions by our creator about how they're supposed to operate. And human beings are given those too, but, the, but there's this dignity that exists within creation to just exist. And the trees know their laws, you know, the sisterhood of the trees, you know, they understand their laws and their responsibilities. And every day we wake up and we see them adhering to those laws. We see them doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, the birds are singing and bringing joy. The water is flowing and cleansing. You know, the fish are there doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, we and we're supposed to be thankful and make not interfere with everything that's going on around us, right? And be very conscious about what we're taking and realizing that everything that in our life that we take and that we use comes at the expense of future generations. And so there's this conservative nature to our Haudenosaunee people where it's you only take what you need, you only use what you need at that moment because you never know if you're gonna need it in the future and you never know if it's going to go away one day because we have to have this like stewardship and this ability to do that. And we see so many ways that um, we're harmed that plants and animals are harmed and that, you know, towns and cities that have come across us are just don't embody these kinds of values that we need to have. And so I think for opportunities, there are definitely things where like, if people live within, you know, the Alderman Tract or like the Nanfan Treaty area, they can definitely come and look toward the Haudenosaunee for those ideas on how to steward that land because we have been caretaking and living in this land for millennia. And so we should be guiding that. We should be doing that. Our governance structure should be empowered. And from us, it, there's this idea of, you know, our laws are coming from um, this idea of having a good mind. And you draw strength into your mind and you gain well-being by having that good ethical relationship with the land and with creation. And so you can draw strength from that relationship, from um, ethical harvesting, ethical 
um, land use, being out of the land, you know, going for a walk, sitting in the sun, all of these things, all of our laws reiterate all these different ways where people can bring this peace and good mind into their daily existence. And so I think that those types of teachings, those types of truths are really necessary to guide these conversations that we're having because so oftentimes the relationship between Indigenous peoples or even how we're talking about dealing with climate change, they become adversarial conversations. But for the Haudenosaunee, all of our conversations are guided by kindness and understanding and truth and a respect for one another and a peacefulness that should be our priority. That's such a great segue to our next question here around uh, around relationship building. And so how can um, how can we imagine really what something different and improve relationships either between those working in gender-based violence fields, those doing land defense? How can allies who might even be listening to this um, find their place and know more about how they can meaningfully build relationships um, with these movements? Yeah, I would say, so You there are recommendations called for justice in the National Inquiry that speak to every Canadian person. Every person has these kinds of things that they could be doing to advance um, gendered safety that has these elements of land and governments built into them, if people want to do that. But I think even the relationship between Protect the Tract and the Water Watchers is like a great example of what's happened because there was, you know, it's kind of something that's evolved really organically over the past, what to say, maybe a little bit over a year, where folks came out to events that were being hosted at Landback, and people just showed up, and they were like, hey, this is who I am, you know, we met Harine and I met other folks, and uh, different folks from the Water Watchers, and they came out, and they've helped and um, volunteered their time, and we've just had this, like, really great, like, working relationship and friendship and collaborated on projects. And it's kind of about being neighborly, but it's just kind of about, you know, being respectful of people and lending a hand when it's needed, but also just like being supportive. And that I think has been really good because, um, you know, we talk about even like treaty relationships. Um, The first treaty that the Haudenosaunee have with like a settler nation is with the Dutch and it's the Guswenta or the Tua Wampum. And it doesn't say that there's nothing between our nations or, or there's a there's um, there's fighting between our nations. It talks about peace, trust, and friendship. So that's what's supposed to exist between our nations, right? And the friendship is so important because even when friendships go bad or are, are kind of waning, that you can still revitalize those relationships when you pay attention to them. I think that's important too. You have to kind of just be mindful about the kind of things you're doing if it feels fair. And that's what I think is really important when we talk about um, relationships or how to build that relationship with Indigenous people. It's not based on like pitying us, but just people recognizing what's fair and trusting your own inner sense of what is right and what is wrong and what is fair and what is just and using your own judgment to be like, I don't feel good with how this relationship is or what this dynamic is. So then turn that into motivation to then do something and look around about how you can begin to enact that responsibility. So anyone who like maybe hasn't been involved with these kinds of things before, like don't feel embarrassed or like ashamed of that, just start doing something now. And those relationships evolve and everyone is constantly learning and growing and building different types of relationships. And that's all totally valid and just encouraging people to like 
start what you can with what you can. And like, certainly there are folks that I know who like never really had indigenous friends before that end up doing like really cool actions together or end up volunteering a lot of their time in communities and build really long lasting friendships. Some people move closer to the reserve because they start ended up so much friends here. All these different things happen, right? And so I think it's just encouraging people to um, put the time in and pay attention to the relationships they're trying to cultivate in their life. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that that genuine intention, uh, thinking about that and, and, and that friendship piece and that love and that community. And I think, you know, what holds a lot of people back from building these relationships is fear of doing it wrong. And I think you touched beautifully on that there's room for everyone to have that relationship and just thinking about how can you start with with what you have. I think that's great. And uh, wondering, Harine, since you're also have been part of the, the Water Watchers and that relationship building with the Protect the Track, if, if you had anything to add here. Yeah, I think Courtney put it very beautifully. And, you know, just like as a as a settler on this land and, and working for a settler led organization, like it's it's our obligation, our moral obligation to stand in solidarity with the various indigenous movements that are taking place across Turtle Island and to respond to their uh, calls to action. You do, you do not have to look too far uh, to see how violence against the land is taking place and who exactly is hurting as a result of that violence and who is profiting from that violence. So whether it's the unchecked, unregulated gravel mining industry across Ontario, or whether it's the criminal water taking permits to corporations and equity firms. Um, meanwhile, indigenous communities like still lack access to clean water. These things are all happening right here in Ontario. Um, and we have a moral obligation to learn about them and to act accordingly to prevent that violence from happening um so that's that that's just something that you know just by being a settler uh we have an obligation to do and um two rivers festival being a a project of the water watchers like this is one small step towards um developing relationships and um working with the diverse players and communities across um across um our watersheds. Um, but this needs to be taken further because relationship building does take time and it requires a lot of care and could even take years to build. Um, so I see the Two Rivers Festival being an introduction to the various relationships that can take place, but it's up to us collectively to ensure that we sustain those relationships and form deeper connection and become accomplices um, in our shared goals of water um, and land stewardship. So, so this is just the beginning, in my opinion. We have lots of work to do and lots of learning to do, and still there's lots of organizing um, that can be done. Thank you so much, Harin. Yeah, I think I'm hoping that a, a takeaway from today is not just knowing more about the issues and how they intersect, but recognizing that the pathways to prevention and the next steps around land violence, colonization and decolonization and the movements to end gender-based violence absolutely intersect. And the solutions to both of those absolutely intersect. And I think it comes from community organizing, grassroots movements, collaborations, relationship building. So I'm hoping for those who are listening uh, can come away with this knowing that there are 
organizers in your community, there's uh, Courtney Skye, there's Harina Hassan, there's Emma Callan uh, who are doing this work and are looking for those accomplices on those journeys. And so just before we close off here, uh, I'm wondering, Courtney, if you wanted to share some more information about Protect the Tract, where folks can find more information and how they can support you. Yeah, so Protect the Tract, we have website, social media, all to Protect the Tract. Um, we also have a Patreon, so if folks want to make donations or sign up to support, we have some really great, awesome um, prizes and like tier reward tiers on our Patreon, but we also have you know, new campaigns and things that we're hoping to grow. So if you're especially living around the Grand River watershed, we do have a campaign we're launching now, which is called Owakta. 2022, which is taking pictures of maple trees. So we have prophecy and law that set down for the people that talks about the health monitoring, the culture they need to monitor the health of maple trees specifically. And so we're, take, we're hoping people will take pictures and use the hashtag to help us monitor the health of maple trees in the Grand River watershed. So if, if folks want to check that out, they're welcome to. And we're doing prize draws for that three times this year. Amazing. Thank you so much, Courtney, for being here today. It's been a, a real, real treat to have you to speak with us and to learn from you. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will feel the same way. And um, before we close off as well, I want to hear from Harine if you wanted to share a bit more about the Two Rivers Festival, where folks can look for information and get involved with all the great stuff going on there. Yeah, there's lots of events that are that are happening uh, throughout the months of May and June. You can learn more about uh, the Two Rivers Festival and the events that we're running throughout the months of May and June on our website. We've got um, the garlic mustard poll happening with Operg on the 12th of May. We've got uh, a medicinal plant walk on the 1st of May. We've got getting to know your treaty partner with Nancy Rowe happening on the 9th. And then there's countless events you can check out throughout the, the month of June as well. Um, so just keep an eye out um, and follow us on social media. Amazing. Well, it's been so great chatting with you both. I want to thanks, uh, thank you sincerely for this conversation, as well as May being uh, Sexual Violence Prevention Month. Uh, feel free to check out the events that Guelph Flying to Women in Crisis is hosting and think about the ways this month and beyond that you can work in solidarity with these movements, find the movements and the individuals in the community that align with you and your values and figure out what they're doing and how you can support them. Um, Courtney, did you have any final thoughts before we end off? No, I just wanted to thank you for having um, for having me and being engaged in this conversation. And I hope people take the opportunity to continue to learn and look for opportunities um, as they're coming up and that they attend the Two Rivers Festival because Protect the Track is also going to be there at some point. I don't remember the date specifically, but we will be there at some of the events to talk about our, our role as well. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for your energy, your advocacy and your beings. And I wish you all the best with the Two Rivers Festival and the Protect the Track campaigns for 2022 and beyond. Awesome. Thank you.